Good morning. On Wednesday, Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky addressed the joint houses of the Oireachtas. People of Ireland, since the very first days you are supporting Ukraine, you did not doubt starting helping us. You began doing this right away. And although you are a neutral country, you have not uh, remained neutral to uh, the disaster. I'm grateful to you, to every citizen of Ireland. Ukraine and Ireland jointly can do much more than the biggest country of the world was trying to destroy. I'm grateful to Ireland. Slava Ukraini. And on the Clare Byrne show, Evelyn brought us these voices from outside the doll. Yeah, my name is Victoria. I'm Ukrainian living in Dublin for the last five years. And I'm here because there's the only place to be here today. How significant is it for you that the president is addressing Irish politicians oh God, at the higher level? You know, That's very important. I think, uh, I think this is really important, especially thinking of the things that Ireland has done for Ukrainian refugees and uh, for Ukraine itself. I think it's super significant and very important. So, hi, my name is Natalia. I'm Russian. Uh, I've been living in Dublin for past... Uh, nearly seven years and I'm here because uh, my country is currently uh, doing the most horrible thing that I've been all my life growing up knowing that should not happen in this world. Um, I do have family in Russia um, so I'm here to support uh, people of Ukraine. Uh, my name is Tatiana Marushko and I'm a Ukrainian living in Ireland and um, while people of Ireland have done absolutely everything in their power to help us. They've opened their the homes, their hearts, everything. They're not the people who can decide to stop Russia in what they're doing. So I am here to remind the Irish government that while they're trying to find words, we are being slaughtered. While they're looking away, we are living the reality. We, we carry that pain and every minute of inaction is another life taken, another child's life taken. That's why I'm here. And later on the news at one, Ukrainian native Victoria Featherchak, lecturer in European studies at the Norwegian University and also Maynooth University, give her reaction. And in relation, Victoria, to, to this urging that he made on Ireland to show more leadership, was the phrase he used, convince EU partners to introduce more sanctions on Russia. Um, how does he see the kind of role that Ireland can play in, in that, uh, clearly, that Ukrainian campaign for much tougher sanctions? Well, realistically speaking, we're talking about um, political will, internal political will, if you want me to put it this way, which can be then projected to the stronger um, foreign policy lobbying of uh, greater sanctions or more detailed sanctions against Russia in the EU. So realistically speaking, that's very much leadership in the EU that can be uh, performed by Ireland. But also, I think Ireland has a very uh, good standing in the EU because we're talking about humanitarian aspect of it. And Ireland has great history of that. And I think that part was also mentioned by uh, by our president. So I think uh, to project soft power, I mean, to, to an extent, to convince, to lobby interest of uh, Ukrainian people, I think Ireland has great opportunities to do that in the EU. But also it's going to show um, a stronger Ireland in the EU, where its we- positions are. From the news at one. However, not everyone thought more sanctions was a good idea.
While the majority of TDs and senators had stood and applauded President Zelensky's speech, four People Before Profit TDs had stood but had not applauded. Sanctions they held were ineffective and even counterproductive. But for some callers into Liveline, this proved contentious. Katie was in the chair. Here is People Before Profit member Owen. I think in this that we are in solidarity with the Russian anti-war movement and we need to build a global anti-war movement. And actually that has to be, you know, ordinary people standing up and getting organised against all of the warmongers, uh, be they NATO, be they Russia. Um, and but can, can I ask should... you, Owen, would, mm-hmm. would you support the lifting of sanctions right now? Yeah, I, th- I think the sanctions are uh, actually going to be detrimental. It's adding fuel to the fire. Um, the people who can end, who can stop this war, are the uh, the Ukrainian people and the Russian anti-war protesters. Those are the people that can actually put the pressure on to put an end to this war. And I think that the sorry, how how can how can the Ukrainian people do any more than they're doing already? Well, this is why, uh, it, obviously, it won't be the Ukrainian people on their own. There has to be an anti-war movement, and, it, uh, and the most important part of that anti-war movement is in Russia, uh, I think. And Owen went on to speak about the failure of sanctions against Saddam Hussein in Iraq in the 90s and held to his belief that sanctions would be counterproductive. However, many callers to the programme took a different view, including Derek. Ireland should not be in a position to turn around and criticise and not support Ukraine because of what Russia is doing. We should be supporting Ukraine. And your argument about Saddam Hussein, that, that is pointless. But we're not talking about Saddam Hussein, we're talking about the invasion of Ukraine. Like, it's, it's just, it's appalling what people before proper are doing. We should stand, like, even Zelensky said it, Ireland needs to do more. We do need to do more. You know, I, I never vote for people before proper after what they've done today. It's a disgrace. And we need to start doing more for the Ukraine people. That's absolutely uh, Derek's prerogative if he doesn't want to vote for people for profit again. And I can assure you, I'm not the only person who's saying that. Can I finish, sorry, I didn't interrupt you. A lot of people are flowers. Well, I'm interrupting you. I am interrupting you because it's a disgrace what you're doing. The amount of people I've spoken to this morning, and they're all saying it's an absolute disgrace what they've done. Okay, okay, let Owen back in there for a minute, Derek. Thank you. We do think there's a way of ending this war, uh, which is not more warmongering and throwing more uh, fuel on the fire. And that is an international anti-war movement. And this is precisely why People for Profit has been... But, but would you... Uh, or, sorry, organise a protest, be organise a pro- protest at the Russian hat. embassy, uh, for example, in solidarity with the Ukrainian people and in solidarity with okay, the okay, 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 Derek, Derek um, I, I will let you back I, in. I really, but, but I can't... I, I haven't interrupted anybody. Yeah, yeah, here please, I, I, Derek, I'll just ask you to hold off for a moment and we'll let Owen make his response. Owen. As I was saying, um, there is a way of ending this war and that's through the building of an uh, international anti-war movement, which is precisely why People for Profit has protested at the Russian embassy in solidarity with the Ukrainian people and in solidarity with the Russian anti-war protesters. From Liveline. And while callers into Katie might have debated the issue, Ukraine continued to call for even tougher sanctions against Vladimir Putin and Russia, but also weapons. And as NATO foreign ministers met in Brussels on Thursday, this contribution from Ukrainian Foreign Minister Dmitry Kuleba. My agenda is very simple. It has only three items on it. It's weapons, weapons and weapons. And a tough line too from the EU's foreign policy chief, Josep Borrell. 
The important thing is to continue putting pressure on Russia and continue supporting Ukraine. Zelensky has a lot of uh, support, but what uh, he really needs is more arms. Less applause and more arms. And all of this debate against the backdrop of devastating scenes of brutality. Atrocities that showed the very worst of humanity. And over the weekend, bodies on the streets of Bucha and evidence of torture and rape. And be warned, the descriptions you'll hear are graphic and distressing. It really was hell on earth. The horrific discovery in towns near Kiev in Ukraine of dozens of bodies along roads, some with their hands tied, shot in the head, burnt. Prosecutors are investigating potential war crimes. They say 410 bodies were found. The towns will go down in infamy. Bucha, Irpin, Hostomel. The discoveries were made by Ukrainian soldiers, followed closely by journalists as Russian soldiers were pushed back. In a late-night video address, Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky addressed the mothers of Russian soldiers. I want every mother of every Russian soldier to see the bodies of the dead people in Butcher, Erpin and Hostomel. What did they do? Why were they killed? What did a man who rode a bicycle down the street do? Why did you try to kill ordinary, peaceful people in an ordinary, peaceful city? Why were women strangled, their earrings ripped out of their ears? How is it conceivable to rape women and kill them in front of their children, making fun of their bodies even after they've died? Why were people's bodies crushed with tanks? What did the Ukrainian city of Butcher do to Russia? How did all of this become possible? From Monday's Morning Ireland. And as the week ended, evidence of even more atrocities, and in particular, the town of Bordyanka. On Thursday, Claire spoke to Bell True, international correspondent with the London Independent. Bordyanka is basically just a bit further north than Butcher and it has been hit by very heavy bombardment. So they're still pulling bodies out from under the rubble after weeks of it being um, hit uh, during the fighting, but also under occupation by Russian forces. I was actually in city in towns just south of that yesterday speaking to people and the testimonies were really horrific in terms of um, not just the heavy bombardments, but also the behaviour of the Russian forces who have been you know, committing things like summary executions, at least this is what people have told me, um, torture. There's been uh, reports of sexual assault against women, of people going missing. So I think we're just beginning to get the beginnings of the testimonies of what's been happening over the last month. What's your understanding of when uh, those events happened? Was that as the soldiers were leaving or was that a, very much at the start? At least talking to people in places like Butcher, it seems to have been ongoing all the way through. So there were situations where I spoke to one family who had spent their ent- had basically never left. So first of all, they were under ferocious bombing. And then the next thing that they um, had to deal with was the occupation by Russian forces. Um, they told me that uh, they had soldiers who basically used their tanks to break down the fences to enter their houses. They were looking for all the male members of the households 
people were um, t- taken off to schools. Their hands were tied behind their backs. They were, they were tortured. They were executed. I spoke to one 15-year-old boy who was trying to mend the roof of his building after a particularly bad night of bombing. The Russian soldiers uh, pulled him off the roof, put him on the floor face down, shot twice next to his head and wanted to execute him. And it was only the last-minute intervention by commanders that stopped it from happening. There's also horrendous stories about um, people's bodies being left to be eaten by rats and dogs, bodies being discovered with their faces half blown off, not knowing, you know, without any indication of what happened to them. There's also trenches of mass graves. Um, I went to one site where um, a priest had basically just hastily bod- uh, bo- uh, buried dozens of bodies. He stopped counting at, at 100. He said he had to do that because there was no electricity to run the morgues and also the morgues were overflowing. So we're really, as I said, seeing the beginning of these testimonies coming out of these areas. And as people in the east of Ukraine were being urged to flee while they still could, yesterday, a Russian airstrike on a train station at Kramatorsk, leaving dozens of evacuees dead. On drive time, Cormac spoke to Roland Oliphant, senior foreign correspondent with The Telegraph. And we're told this is a key railway station in in Kramatorsk where people are basically trying to evacuate and flee the region. Yeah, exactly. So Kramatorsk is one of the uh, one of the major towns that has remained under Ukrainian control in Donetsk region since 2014, when the war began. There began. Um, its train station uh, is one of the major stations serving a very large area. Um, it links up to Kiev, and essentially, the Ukrainians, well, the world is expecting a, a very large battle for all of Donbass um, unfolding in the next couple of weeks, and the government has told civilians to get out while you still can. So um, the city council says there are about 4,000 people queuing on the platforms um, and in the car park waiting for evacuation trains when this strike happened. Uh, there's not really any way, any way the Russians could not have been aware of that, to be quite honest, because this this has been going for a couple of days. I mean, like, as recently as last night, the, this train station was really crowded. Um, so whoever fired this missile, um, as far as I'm concerned, most likely knew what they were doing. The Russians are denying it, though, aren't they? Well, they would, wouldn't they? They lied about MH17 when they shot that down. They lied about Russian troops in Crimea when I was interviewing Russian troops in Crimea. He said, hi, I'm a Russian soldier. You know, um, doesn't mean anything. They, they, they've turned around and said, oh, we don't have... <laughs> the Russian Ministry of Defence um, said today, oh, it can't have been us because um, only Ukraine has Tochku, um ballistic missiles. Well, the Russian Ministry of Defence's own uh, television channel, uh, Zvezda, published a report about Russian troops training with Tochku missiles in February a week before this invasion began. Um, It's a lie. It's a flat-out lie. And in Russia, denial and propaganda. Yesterday, Claire spoke to Oliver Carroll, correspondent for The Economist. You were tweeting about being sent messages by some of your friends in Russia when the details began to emerge from Bucha. What were they saying to you? Um, Well, many of them simply repeating some of the lines you can see in Russian propaganda channels, which is that uh, something is, is weird about the, the stories which are coming out of Bucha. There's no way that this could have been done by Russians. This was done by either Ukrainian soldiers or it's the, big, it's the biggest setup in, we've ever seen. Um, I know, I simply know that that isn't true because I saw the bodies myself with my own eyes. I saw the the corpses, I saw the, the people with their hands tied behind their backs. I saw they had perforation wounds to their uh, chests, to their their, 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 their their necks, to their uh, heads. And I also could smell the decay of the bodies, which told me that it wasn't something that happened in the last few days, 
when Ukraine was in charge of the territory. And just, just to give some context, the last week in Ukraine has been very cold. So we've been talking about sort of zero or near zero temperatures. So you would expect the bodies to um, to, to preserve without any, the kind of putrid smell we, we were smelling. And certainly the, the testimony of the, um, the survivor I spoke to suggested that the killings took place a lot earlier in the early stages of Russian occupation. And it seems to be perhaps that Russia did not expect to be um, to be retreating and to be leaving such 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 cause of evidence. And if, as many now believe, what is happening in Ukraine constitutes war crimes, will that make any difference to the actions of Vladimir Putin? On Monday's News at One, Gavin spoke to retired Colonel Colm Doyle, who was head of the European monitoring mission in the Bosnian capital of Sarajevo in the 90s, and gave evidence in the successful conviction for war crimes of Serbian General Ratko Mladic. You were involved in the conviction of war criminals in the Balkans, but do you believe that the threat of being tried as a war criminal, of being convicted as a war criminal, is in any way a deterrent to the commitment of war crimes? Um, I'd like to think it is, but I really don't think it's factual. Uh, For no other reason than the War Crimes Tribunal for Yugoslavia was established in 1993, yet it was two years later that you had the slaughter of 7,000 Muslims in Srebrenica. So in that case, it wasn't a deterrent. But in Ukraine, you'll need witnesses. It will be a challenge, but that's not to say it should not be attempted, because I believe war crimes have been committed and are continued to be committed. And that in itself is, in my view, we're duty-bound to have it investigated. And a similar line of questioning on drive time when Cormac put this to John B. Bellinger III, expert on international law and former legal advisor to the US Secretary of State and the National Security Council. Why should we be confident of a prosecution of Putin or any other senior Russian general at the ICC when Bashar al-Assad hasn't been held to account there for using chemical weapons, for example, in Syria? Well, these are good questions. And at the end of the day, do I expect that we would see Putin or the defense minister or even senior Russian generals in the dock in The Hague? I'm not sure I can say that I expect that that will happen. Nonetheless, this is the system that we have set up. This is what the International Criminal Court uh, was set up for. Uh, It's obviously had problems over the last 20 years, but there's a new prosecutor. uh, And this is really going to be the moment for the ICC uh, to uh, investigate these these crimes. And it may well be that they will be able to uh, not only indict Russian officials, but find them in in some places in the world. But Mm -hmm. this is the system that we have right now. One wishes perhaps that it might be better. Uh, But it is uh, the problem when you have uh, uh, countries of great power and equal status uh, that uh, we have to deal with the the system of international law and international institutions uh, that we have. And on Thursday, Russia was suspended from the United Nations Human Rights Council. However, few seem to believe this will impact the actions of Vladimir Putin. Back in a bit. Welcome back. In a world seemingly without rules, rhyme or reason, 
the chance for any bit of control at all, well, we will take it with both hands. So when Ray got all giddy with power and canvassed the team for just one song to consign to the dustbin of history for all eternity, we couldn't pass that up. Uh, so Aaron Eve, who's producing today, said this one. Do you Alright, Roisin said Roisin's a mother of two young children, so you don't need to need you don't need to know any more than that. Connor He wants that to be put in the bin, room one oh one for Neil. Simply right, I sort of like that. And Ashling. Now, as a, as a younger man, I would have had, you know, a hit list, a hate list of songs that I would just, you know, I'd run a mile from, switch off the radio, never play them at a disco. But now I'm older and a little bit more mellow and more tolerant. So I don't have a song. So chilled, he's killing the item. But he did dig deep and find one. This isn't a bad song. It's it's just by association. It's it's not good by association because I had to play it every Saturday night for 10 years. Every Saturday night, the same girl would come up and say, will you play that song, Ray? And I would say to her, do you really want to hear it again? I'll play it for you next week. No, no, please, 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 please. No, 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 no. I got my first real six string. See, it's not a bad song. It's just, it's just, you know, by association. But not a great song in fairness. And a little bit of light relief there because a bit more not so good news coming our way, I'm afraid. Because with all that's going on in the world, we almost don't have the bandwidth. But when it comes to the climate emergency, we don't have a choice. On Monday, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change published the third in a series of reports. And Philip with Claire brought us this. The way I remember the difference between these three reports is, well, quite crude, excuse me. One, what screwed the planet. Two is how screwed is the planet. And three now is how do we unscrew the planet. And you can really lump the first two reports together and distill it into a three-word message. Adapt or die. Eek. But this third report contains a plan. But it does involve changing our ways quite radically. If we want to keep warming at 1.5 degrees, global emissions, and this is a really, really shocking finding from this report, global emissions are going to need to peak in 2025, three years from now, and then start coming down. Put another way, if you want to keep temperatures uh, at or below 1.5 degrees, then in the next 30 years, we would have to reduce our coal consumption by 95% our oil consumption by 60%, our gas by 45%. If you wanted to keep warming to 2 degrees, it would still require really, really deep cuts. Coal, 85%, oil, 30%, gas, 15%. So, you know, put that into some kind of context that makes sense for us. In either scenario, 1.5 or 2 degrees, 
our electricity system is going to have to be run entirely on renewables because the rest of the fossil fuel allowance is still going to be required in other places like production of animal feedstocks and so on. So the next time you hear somebody boasting about the huge scale of Irish ambition and shooting for 80% of our electricity coming from renewables, you know now from this report that what the science is saying is nothing short of all of our electricity coming from renewables by 2050 is going to keep warming below two degrees. And Claire, quite sensibly, finished up the discussion on this point. The fate of this report, it it cannot be left, can it, to gather dust somewhere. It has to be translated into policy and political action, Philip. Let's be optimistic about it, um, because when, when you sit down and you read it, it is a document that deserves optimism. And I'm putting it into the context of, in 2015 in Paris, the world's leaders said, look, we should try and keep warming close to uh, 1.5 degrees as possible. It was non-binding, it was woolly, it was aspirational. But what happened to that was it became a clarion call for young people, for activists, for the school strike movement. And the political culture changed in the course of the last seven years. And now no politician with a half a brain cell would do anything other than echo that ambition of keeping 1.5 alive. But that was an incoherent aspiration. What this document does, what the scientists are doing now is saying, OK, if you're serious about one po- landing this whole thing between 1.5 and 2 degrees, here is exactly what you have to do. So this report, it joins a circle between political aspiration, then public demand, and now you have a blueprint or a manifesto for how to do it. And this, I think, will become the yardstick against which every climate action, every policy decision is going to end up being measured in the course of the rest of this absolutely critical decade. Fast forward to Thursday, the morning after the Fine Gael Parliamentary Party meeting, and this summation from Hugh O'Connell, political correspondent of the Irish Independent. Four hours, uh, Claire. Uh, one, one of the longest parliamentary party meetings I can remember, uh, and certainly some of, some of those who attended said it was it was one of the longest they'd ever gone to, and also one of the most interesting they'd ever gone to. But uh, a lot of uh, opposition expressed to the carbon tax increase from uh, backbenchers up and down the country. Uh, I suppose the most colourful comments was the Kerry TD uh, telling uh, Brendan Griffin telling the meeting that the increase would be a watershed moment for the government, and adding that the Greens will want people to turn off the lights when they're having sex. Um, such was their desire to curb uh, people's energy use and obviously fossil fuel These use. These things now, happen I'm, I'm, when, you've, when you have a four-hour meeting, things like this get uh, said, right? You could say that, yeah. And I'm, I'm sure the Greens would um, would deny that they're going to force people to uh, to turn off, off the lights in their bedroom. Um, but anyway, um, other TDs expressing opposition to the carbon tax increase next month and calling for it to be deferred. Uh, Mayo TD Michael Ring was critical of the Greens and this, uh, this uh, line that emerged earlier this week about... Um, potentially Eamon Ryan encouraging people to have uh, fewer showers or shorter showers and he says that Eamon Ryan might only have had one shower a week but he had a shower every day this prompted the tone of stood to respond that he would shower for as long as he feels is appropriate to shower and on and on it went (laughs) Crisis? What crisis? On Wednesday Una O'Hagan spoke to Ryan about a book called Journey's End The Truth About Life After Death written by her late husband Colm Keane and she spoke about his lifelong search for meaning. I think Colm was trying to find the answers for a very, very long time. You know, what are we doing here? 
what happens when we die? Is there a God? Is there a heaven? Yeah. What is a good life? Is you know, are we judged? All those kind of, of existential. Issues. Yes, yeah, yeah. yes. Um, and like Colm used to say, you know, we we plan for uh, a trip away. You know, two weeks in Spain. We think about it. We organize it. We get the clothes ready. Mm. We pack the. And yet, for the biggest journey that we will make in our life, we don't want to talk about it. We don't want to think about it. Death. Death. Yeah. We're, we're very good in Ireland at the ritual stuff. We're very good after death. Mm-hmm. It's the bit before that we have a real difficulty with. And she spoke about the death of their son, Sean, and she described the peace she'd felt at her husband's bedside when he died in January. I mean, it was such a privilege to be with him. It was in the Waterford Hospice. I held his hand. I told him I loved him. I told him that Sean loved him. Um that he was a great dad and that he'd left a wonderful legacy. And it was kind of, again, into this, you know, tying in with the journey Journey's theme. End, yeah. It was like, you know, when you're on a flight yes, and you're coming into land and it's the perfect flight, mm-hmm. you feel the engine slowing down. Mm-hmm. And that was calm. It was the engine slowed and slowed and slowed. And then you find you're on the ground and it's just so peaceful. And he's, he just slowed and slowed and then passed away. And there was such a sense of peace when he died. It was just, it was incredible. And she believed that while we all strive for a good death, a life well lived will maybe help us get there. There is a thing called a judgment. We don't get away Mm scot-free. And it's not like St. Peter at the pearly gates. Um, We do have to kind of... Rec- deal with a, a reckoning, as it were, okay. and a judgment. Sometimes this happens uh, in the presence of the superior being or God, but more often we do it ourselves. And it's this review happens very quickly. We go through our whole life. And I thought, OK, I, I judge myself. That's fine. I'll give myself a pass. I'll go straight to heaven. Mm. But actually, it's more complicated than that. Colm says, you judge what you've done through the eyes of other people Mm. and the impact that you have had on other people. And he says, very important that you do that review before you die. Like there was a story of a woman called Anne um, and she she knew she she hadn't been that bad, but she hadn't been that good. It was to do relationship to do with her mother. Um, And she realised that she would have to do something about that. Mm -hmm. And then she felt this wonderful sense of forgiveness came back and repaired her relationship with her mother. So we have to do that kind of work before we die. And as to what might happen when the end does come, she offered this. Colm described it very well. He said the most important feature that sums up heaven is the presence of the light. It's where we want to go. Yeah. He said it is love, joy, happiness like you've never known before and also complete understanding of everything, implying that it's our consciousness um, that survives after death. And he said uh, he was absolutely of the belief that death is not an end, but the beginning of something entirely new. Right. And that our consciousness survives and creates uh, uh, and we therefore then live on in a reality of our own making. Una O'Hagan with Ryan.
on the poetry programme of Ignanain at the Ministry of Birds from Louis de Poer. So I start to hear the kind of fine logo trash filler on Africa. Tied a tart on so, a drear urlauri alling or if Ignanain, or but us na year as an eye luffer on sail galere of us, is that carta rerico er vinge na dihe. Ta dorsha er lacha le file de rash with na himmerkig. Fuinoga smede is mere na shimenehe a gleach a lehara, gorainishib a good skelter er a hele. Er maiden, saranushunian na gurtori galanta, clushin na tihe, sculptor noch na marav trina gola. Porterach na lundov, e vorach na marvlinge. Canterach na vishog, e dach na mocht. A churn and lacair, a lad of romplan lay. Is bohire, shukaha, a shille manure. In the housing estate, the swallows are back from Africa. According to the pretty spokesperson from the Ministry for Birds, They've been coming here since this place was nothing but sharp sighs and diseased breath. They have customary rights to the gables of the houses. Doors are flung open to welcome them back. Windows wink at them and chimneys crook their fingers, inviting them over to hear the latest. In the morning, before the well-heeled visitors get up, the houses hear the dead singing in their sleep. Blackbirds lilting in the ruined mortuary, Thrushes chanting in the poorhouse, melting the ice cap on the surface of the day, reducing the road to tears. Louis de Poer reading from his dual language collection Crooked Love, Grow Fear, as heard on the poetry programme. Greg Allen is in Augusta for the Masters. Close to wetting himself. Tiger is back. You know, he is incredibly charismatic. Like, there is, I don't think I've ever, I'm Usain Bolt, I've been in the company of Usain Bolt, he's charismatic. Tiger Woods is, you know, Charisma Incorporated. And they just love him here. I mean, the amount of gallery, uh, the amount of, uh, you have to call them around here, patrons in the gallery, uh, following Tiger here, it looks like about half the spectators are in that group alone, just watching the man wearing the cerise crew cut top and uh, the black trousers. And uh, it's all business for Tiger. He's, 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 he's like he's in a zone again. Greg on drive time. And yes, of course, his Irish interest. But all eyes were on Tiger, back on the course after a dreadful car crash, which had left his leg severely damaged. Yeah, I, I went down to the first tee and, you know, first thing, he's limping. There's no question that uh, sometimes he walks gingerly and sometimes he looks like he's actually limping. And I was just watching him down the first, uh, especially the hill that he has to, has to climb from around the first tee up to the, the middle of the fairway. Uh, he wasn't in the middle of the fairway off the, the first tee, but he did get himself a situation where he made par in the first. Uh, a real scrambly, sort of not very pretty looking par at the first, but it was still a par, holding eight foot putt. But he's limping and... The walk here is the issue. It's not the game. His swing actually looks like it could be as good as it was at his very best. I mean, there's a lot of swing gurus analysing the swing that he has right now, and it looks really, really, really good at 46 years of age. Maybe not the same amount of speed that he might have had in his swing when he was at his peak, but the game is good. It's the matter of getting around here, and I don't know if you ever watch much of the Masters Coma, but there's mm. an awful lot of walking up and down hills here, and he's got an awful lot of metal in the lower part of his right leg, and there's very little flexion in the foot. He walks very flat-footed as well as that slight limp, so it's about getting around here on the two legs, dealing with the swelling at the end of the day, the amount of pain that he has, the amount of painkillers that he has to take, because we had thunderstorms which have really softened the course here and made the walk maybe even a bit longer. Ooh, that sounds tricky. 
Now, we don't speak golf here on Playback. And I'm guessing from this question and Greg's answer, Sarah might not be fluent either. Greg, I, uh, perhaps this is a silly question, but would he not be allowed a golf buggy under the circumstances? Now, that's interesting because there is, you can use a golf buggy at something like the father and son event that he played in December, uh, which he played with his son, Charlie. Um, but you can't use it on the PGA Tour. You can't use it in major golf championships. You have to walk the course and play the game uh, the way it should be played, uh, as, as many traditionalists would have it. Mm. And you must walk the course to play in a major championship or on the PGA Tour. A special exemption is possible on the PGA Tour, but in the majors, no. On Mooney Goes Wild, when is a starfish not a starfish? And when is a seagull not a seagull? Now I'm told scientists don't like to refer to them as starfish. It's a bit like seagulls. And scientists don't like to call them starfish. They like to call them... Sea stars. Sea stars, because they're because, they're, because they're not <laughs> fish at all. Granso, that's Terry Flanagan on the seafront in Skerries with Dr. Kieran O'Keefe, formerly head biologist at the National Parks and Wildlife Service. And we got a lesson in starfish sea stars, albeit with a bit of negging from Terry. They're amazing animals. They don't have blood, they don't have a heart, they don't have eyes as such, they just have eye spots on the end of each of the, the arms, and they don't have a brain. Now, I remember Aina was on a couple of weeks ago and talking about the brain of a fly and how small it was, about the size of a pinhead, and how even with such a small brain, it could manoeuvre in three dimensions and do everything so much quicker than humans did. And yet we have here a starfish that doesn't have any of these, and yet they're so successful. Yeah, they are evolved to do a particular set of tasks, and they're really, really really good at doing them. So they're very good at finding food. They're very good at moving. When you consider that they're a stationary animal very often when we see them, and yet they can move steadily. They're a very, very simple animal, but, but they're, they're very good at what they do. So they've got hundreds of tube feet under each of their five arms, and these all work hydraulically, and they can give them great strength. So they're able to prise apart the two shells of a mussel, which is a very strong animal. It's very hard to do that you know, if you had one in your own hands and they can pull them apart, and then they push out their stomach into the mussel to eat it, and they consume it externally. So they And they're known to regenerate lost limbs. That must be an advantage to an animal. It must be. There are many of them that only have four, and sometimes even three, mm. limbs, probably due to predation, where they get something nipped off. But they're able to survive and to, to move and to feed and to behave as normal. Quite impressive, despite what they're lacking. And in case you were wondering... Some species of gull, particularly herring gulls and black-headed gulls, two of our most familiar gull species, they'll actually often feed well inland during the day, often quite far away from the coast. And that's one of the main reasons, actually, why I prefer not to use the term seagull myself, because it masks the fact that some of these birds, actually, the sea is only part of their lives. They spend a lot of the time away from the sea feeding well inland. So there. Nile Hatch, Mooney Goes Wild, accuracy in all things. On Drive Time, a Cormac special, contender for Question of the Week. He's talking to dog behavioralist Susie Walsh. And while generally you might look for context, don't think it's going to matter. Can you teach a dog an expression? So Jim Carrey's dog, for example, he's renowned for as an actor for being able to manipulate his face into a million different ways. Could he teach his dog Jim Carrey expressions, I wonder? Uh, to a certain extent, you definitely can train a dog on a cue to have it like I could te- teach you to if I had a camera up to say smile and you would smile. 
but the emotion, the same emotion mightn't be behind it, but I can definitely train you to display a certain, we do it for dogs in the movies all the time or dogs in TV work and things like that, where we need to have them, they have to have a certain facial expression like the hang dog expression that we were talking about. Yes, absolutely. Okay. You, that, you that was ta- quite a curveball question. <laughs> Susie, so, so fair play for answering it. Can we teach dogs Jim Carrey expressions? Well, there's... <laughs> oh, wow. To a certain extent, yeah. <laughs> you can only imagine Sarah's expression. And on Monday, nine o'clock, a whole lot of loving in Studio Six. I can't tell you how happy she is to be here. <laughs> I love getting up in the oh, morning. Oh, you love it, don't you? You bounce in here like a spring chicken saying, Absolutely. Oh, I wish it was on earlier. <laughs> the amazing laugh of Sheila Ferguson, singer with The Three Degrees. And she combined that laugh with honesty, charm and frankly, pure flirtation. What age are you? 74. You know. I am. I refuse to believe I should that. know my age, shouldn't I? Yeah, but I also think you're a messer and you're probably just trying to spin me a yarn just for no, the crack. No, 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 no. Would I do that? Yes. Well, I would, but... I've I, known I, you I, 20 I, minutes, I, I, yes. <laughs> I don't happen to be doing it at the, at the moment. <laughs> wow, that's 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 breathtaking. Mm, yeah. Yes, I would For somebody who so. came in here crying and whinging about having to get up early for an interview. <laughs> um, I was up a lot earlier than you, sucker. <laughs> I had to put my face on. You, you, you come in looking like that. I do, and I go home looking like that. <laughs> Now, Sheila was in town because she was starring in the musical Chicago, but her career was stellar and she wasn't shy when it came to some name dropping. Um, Elvis? The Elvis lifting me higher than I've ever, ever been, been lifted, lifted before. It's a great tune, as you know. And then Elvis coming. Uh-huh. I met him once in Vegas very quickly, before you ask. And he How was, was he, that, Sheila? Brief, but... Well, no, he was eating all his peanut butter and butter and bacon sandwiches, so he was pretty uh, obese at the time. Okay. But um, he was Elvis, you know, and yeah. he was he was just a nice guy. Next up, Marvin Gaye, who helped her out when she played her first gig at the Apollo at the age of 14. You know, and he'd look like a god in that blue satin costume with the ruffled... Uh, shirt and bow tie and he sat he said sat sit sit down and we talked and he was so nice right. and he he put me at my ease yeah. knowing that I was nervous and that's something I've carried with me all of my Lovely. career what a great skill exactly yeah and uh he signed my autograph and do you know that we stayed friends until he died did in you really in day indeed a gentleman then very much so and then bizarrely Prince Charles Everybody believed that we were lovers what? when we weren't. How did that happen? I will. That was a song I recorded. How did that happen? Um, he 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 did make several moves, but I didn't let I didn't take him up on sure. it. You know, I wasn't going to be a notch on his bedpost. But you know, it was it was it was nice having him flirt, and um, I gave him toe to toe, and I think he liked that because I didn't catal. Yeah, he would say. Um, I have a train. I said, yeah, well, I got a plane. <laughs> I, I didn't, but I had to have a comeback, you know. I had to have a comeback. I'm from, from the ghetto, you know. So um, he just laughed. He said, Sheila, you're something else. I said, yeah, so were you. And on it went. They got themselves here. My sex life was gone forever now. <laughs> Actually, speaking of which, uh-huh. um, you did say at one point. Too early for that. Not net, uh, uh, Never too early. <laughs> <laughs> As you were saying, as I was saying, as you were saying, um, this is quite the morning. Um, I, as I was, saying, <laughs> so I've heard that before. <laughs> 
You're going to be put off the air now. I think we were He's a very gorgeous guy, ago. ladies yeah. and gentlemen. Yeah. He's a hottie. You got, uh, well, as I say. He's turning red now. I am, yeah. <laughs> you, have me, you have me bright red. As you were saying? I have. I, I have I've been told. I have a great face for radio. <laughs> So you won't see me on <laughs> on stage with this Jesus. Okay. That is the best laugh. Sheila Ferguson with mine. And that is it for this week's playback. Thank you for listening. Talk to you next week.